open up your Bibles to John chapter 11. In your books, we're going to be on lesson number 109, entitled The Resurrection and the Life, part one. And we will be looking at the first 16 verses of John 11. So let's begin by asking the Lord's blessing on our time. Father God, we just thank you so much for our health. May we never take it for granted. Thank you for the beauty of every day that you give to us of life. And Father, as uh, we come now to this lesson on the resurrection and the life, we are so glad to be able to discuss this topic, especially on the heel heels of last week's difficult look at Hades and hell. And now today we have the great truth of the fact that none of us need ever experience the second death because of the fact that you came here to give your life for us and, and in your life you proved that you are the resurrection and the life by raising not only Jairus's daughter and the widow's son of Nain, but also Lazarus, who we will look at today. And then, of course, most glorious of all, your own resurrection from the dead. Father, we thank you for the truth that he that believeth in you, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And that is absolutely the greatest truth that there is in the entire world, and we thank you for that. Now we just ask that you would help us to all focus on what your spirit has to say to us through your word. I pray that you would use your servant to magnify yourself, for we do pray, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen. For the first time since lesson number 103, which was actually, I think, the last lesson in book four, when we looked at the Lord's quick break from his Perean ministry to visit Jerusalem of Judea in order to celebrate the Feast of Dedication, better known to us as Hanukkah, and that was back over in John chapter 10, we now return to John's gospel. Did you know we have been in the, in the book of Luke for a long, long time? We have not been in John's gospel since lesson 103. Now that feast, Hanukkah, is celebrated at the same time of the year that you and I as Christians are celebrating Christmas. They, the Jews celebrate Hanukkah in the winter of the year. And Jesus attended that feast even though he did not have to. It was not a mandatory feast to attend, but he did attend it. And uh, even though he also went to Jerusalem to celebrate Hanukkah, even though the last time he had been in Jerusalem, there had been great hostility toward him. That had been two and a half months earlier when he had likewise come to Jerusalem to celebrate the mandatory Feast of Tabernacles, which is also known as the Feast of Booths. And the Jews, if you remember, at that time had sought to kill him. Actually, the last time the Lord was in Jerusalem for Hanukkah, he had talked, remember, about being the one who gives eternal life to his sheep, and they are the ones who know his voice, and he also claimed deity very distinctly by saying, I and my father are one. That was in John 10:30. And he also said, I am the son of God. He said, the father is in me and I in him. And the Jews were so incensed by those very clear statements to deity. The Jews were so upset that you remember they actually surrounded him and made a circle around him and they picked up stones to, to kill him, to stone him to death. Well, the disciples, as we're going to see in our lesson today, obviously that little incident scared them to death. 
they were glad to be over in Perea. And if you want to see where Perea is, look at the, the maps in the back of your Bibles, which I'm sure you all have. It was a different province further away from Judea, J Jerusalem of Judea. But they had not forgotten that. And we see that in today's lesson. For example, look at verse 8 of chapter 11 where it says, you know, he says, let's go to Judea again. And his disciples say him to a master, the Jews of late sought, sought to stone you. You know, why, why would you want to go back there? And then Thomas later on down in verse 16 says, uh, okay, if he's determined to go back there, let's go with him and we'll all die with him. So they had not forgotten that experience. But, of course, it didn't affect him because he knew that it was not yet his hour to die for the sins of the world is the Passover lamb. It was not yet the celebration of Passover when he would be the Passover lamb. So it says in John 10:39, he just very easily, I don't know how he did it, but he escaped out of their hands. And ever since that, that time when he attended the feast of Hanukkah, he has been involved in his Perean ministry. And it has been a very successful ministry. Remember, he had so much fruit there that we were told that was the only time we read of Jesus rejoicing in his spirit. And it was because people were so receptive to him over in Perea. He's been there ever since John chapter 10. And his ministry there, we looked at from Luke 13 all the way until Luke 17. His ministry there included in the written record three prophecies, which we discussed in lesson number 104, which was entitled Lost Opportunities, and also ten parables, which we have been looking at ever since lesson 105. And of course, I stretched those uh, lessons 108 and... Uh, let's see, 107 and 108 into, into three lessons apiece. Uh, but we have been looking at a lot of parables. Have you known that? Some of you have never heard me teach on anything but parables since you've been coming to this Bible study. Because we have been looking at the parable of the seats at, the, at a wedding feast, the parable of the great banquet, the parable of the tower builder, the parable of the king going to war, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the shrewd steward, the parable of the, um, the one we just looked at, the rich man and Lazarus, and the parable of the unworthy slave, which I didn't have time to discuss with you, but I hope you read about it in your books. So I just wanted to kind of set the setting because some of you may have lost your way. Where are we in our life of Christ study? We're at the end now of his Perean ministry. Lazarus is, he just got word Lazarus died. Of course, he knew about it because he's omniscient, but he's about to return to the area of Jerusalem. And time-wise, we are only to, like a week or two from his crucifixion. Isn't that amazing? Here we are on our fifth year of the Life of Christ study, and we have four to go. At the rate I'm going, we might have five more years to go. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe we have six more years to go. But, uh, but we're like a week or two. Commentators are a little divided on whether the resurrection of Lazarus was a week or two weeks from his own crucifixion. But we're within a matter of days from his crucifixion. And yet we're like only halfway in our study. And what that tells you is that about half of the gospel accounts have to do with that Passion Week because he came here to die. That's the emphasis of his whole earthly ministry. So with that, let's read. First of all, I want to look at John 11, verses 1 to 6. And uh, I think we will actually cover all 16 verses that I want to. So don't get nervous. 
I did complete them yesterday, so I hope we'll get that far today as well. Let's look at verses 1 to 6. It says, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus, of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, unto Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had therefore abode that he was sick, Wait, what did I say? When he had heard, therefore, that he, Lazarus, was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Good thing that it says he loved Martha, because if you just read that, you know, he got the message and he stuck around where he was for another two days, you'd wonder about his love for them, wouldn't you? It's interesting that the word for love in verse 3 happens to be, you know, now the Greek language has five different words for love. In the English, we only have that one word, love. They have five words. And the word that is used in verse 3 is uh, phileo, love. Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest. You know, the Lord had a brotherly love for Lazarus because the Lord was not only God, he was also man. So as a man, he had an affectionate uh, brotherly love for this man, Lazarus, as he did for his own disciples and as he did, you know, for for, for all of his sheep. But as God, he also had agape love for all of his people, didn't he? Of course he did, unconditional God love. And that is the word that is used when John tells us in verse 5, now Jesus loved, agape love, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And because of his love, he remained two more days, and we'll discuss that. In our step-by-step life of the Lord Jesus Christ through all four gospel accounts, which is why it is taking us so long, because we're not just covering John or Matthew, we're covering all four. We are now just a matter of days, perhaps two weeks from the cross, and we find that events at this particular time had been sovereignly designed so that a dear friend of Jesus named Lazarus, we've just been talking about another Lazarus, so what does the name Lazarus mean, ladies? God is my help. At this particular time, this man named Lazarus, God is my help, was struck with an illness that resulted in his death. Now, we do not have to guess the reason for why Lazarus in Bethany, and by the way, the word Bethany in Hebrew means house of affliction. House of affliction. Or house of mourning, weeping, which is very appropriate, you know, based on what happened there with Lazarus. But we don't have to guess God's reason for why Lazarus of Bethany got sick and died at this time, this particular time in the life of God's son, because we are specifically given the reason for this sickness and death by the Lord himself. What did he say in verse 4? His message back to the two sisters was, this sickness is not unto death, but, here's the reason for it, for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. And who is he calling himself in this message? He's calling himself the Son of God, which is a clear claim to deity. Yes, 
death was going to intervene in the process of God working out his purposes for both he and his son to be glorified. But death would not have the last word. Which, by the way, if you think about it, is true for every believer who, just like Lazarus, has God as his or her help. You know, it is very wise. It's actually the wisest thing of all to be friends with the very one who holds the keys to, to death and Hades. And who is that one? I think it's Revelation 119 or something like that that says he's the one, not Satan. <laughs> Jesus is the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. You see, one day, Christ, even though he has delayed now from where you and I are in history, he has delayed for some 2,000 years or some two days, because with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years. It's been two days that he's delayed, <laughs> 2,000 years. But one day, he is going to return to this larger Bethany called earth. Is not this earth a house of affliction and a house of mourning? Isn't it? A place of death and weeping and tears? But one day he's going to, even though he's delayed, he is going to come back and he is going to give the command to all of his beloved friends who place their faith in him before his de their deaths and they are going to actually witness. <laughs> because remember where their souls are. Their souls are already in the presence of the Lord in heaven. So they're going to witness their own bodies. Did you think about that? They're going to be watching their own bodies come out of their graves glorified. And you know, that, think about it. And, and then those glorified bodies are going to unite with their souls. And that's better than what Lazarus experienced because when he came out of his tomb, yes, his soul had to come back from the bosom of, of uh, Abraham down there in the, in the paradise section of Hades. His soul went right there, you know. And his soul had to come back and unite with his body, but he didn't get a glorified body. He had to come back into his, you know, old um, flesh and bone, regular human, unglorified body. So it's going to be it's going to be even better. And then once again, both God and his blessed son, who is the resurrection and the life, who made such a glorious resurrection of the saints possible. Once again, God and his son will receive the glory as he did in this preview of this greater resurrection. Uh, you know, what we see here with Lazarus is just like a, a mini picture of what one day is going to happen in, in, the, in the rapture of the saints. And again, at the end of the tribulation with the Old Testament and the tribulation saints. So it's just a, a mini preview of it. Now, the miracle concerning Lazarus did bring glory to God and to Christ. Because, for one thing, it displayed the deity of Christ. And it brought glory to God and to Christ because it was used at a very critical time in the lives of the disciples, the Lord's men, to strengthen their faith at a time when they were going to need all the strengthening of faith that was possible because just in a very short time, they were going to see their own master laid into a tomb, just as Lazarus had been, which leads 
to another way in which the miracle concerning Lazarus glorified God and glorified the Son of God. And by the way, you cannot glorify God and not glorify the Son. If you do not glorify the Son, you are not glorifying God the Father. They, they come together. You cannot glorify one apart from the other. You can't glorify Christ and not be glorifying the Father. But uh, another, another way is because the death and the raising of Lazarus um, it directly led to the... It was a, used as a catalyst that directly led to the cross, which was... Now, the world might look at the cross and say, oh, well, you know, that guy messed up. He didn't know what he was doing. He was self-deceived. And, but actually, the cross was the greatest glorification of, of the Son of Man, the Son of God, that there was. And the glorification of the Son brought glory to the Father. And Christ himself stated this over in just one more chapter. Over in John chapter 12, verse 23, he said, The hour is come. This is when it was finally there. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And what was he talking about? The cross. He was going to be glorified on the cross. He said, For this cause came I into the, uh, unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. The Son of God was going to be glorified on the cross, and he said, through that, glorify your own name. Nothing has glorified Christ as much as his death for the sins of the world on the cross. And nothing has glorified the Father as much as that perfect, willing obedience of his Son. Well, God is also glorified by this miracle in that... It illustrates the truths of the words that Jesus had just spoken through Abraham. Now, in studying the Lord's life chronologically, step by step, using a harmony of the gospel so that we know what he did and what was the next thing he did. You know, we're here in one book one week and we're in another book the other week. But in doing this, I hope you realize that we get some very great additional blessings um, that a lot of the commentators miss. And trust me, I've got a stack of, of Bibles, uh, books on, on the, the four Gospels that I could probably, that probably would be as tall as me if I put them, you know, stack them up on one another. We've just got lots of books on the Gospels. And I couldn't find a single commentator who, who realized this blessing. Because they either study the whole book of John, or they study the whole book of Mark, or they study the whole book of Luke. So they don't realize, what you and I have the advantage of realizing using a harmony, is that following Luke 16 and the Lord's giving of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the very next event that occurred in the Lord's life was his resurrection of Lazarus of Bethany. Over in, I mean, if you're studying through Luke... And you read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the next thing you study, you know, is on and on into Luke 17, 18. So you wouldn't know that. And if you're studying John, you'd read about the Good Shepherd sermon and everything that happened in John chapter 10. Then you'd come to the resurrection of Lazarus. So you wouldn't get that picture. Do you all understand what I'm saying? But we have the advantage of finding out now that the very next event that occurred actually fit as a perfect example of... Um, where I lost my place, of how miracles do not of themselves, apart from the word of God, persuade men to repent and get, get saved. 
I'll go back to that. I lost my place here. All right, we get additional blessings, and this is one of them. The raising of Lazarus from the dead was the very next event to occur. And I don't think it was coincidence that both men in these accounts were named Lazarus. Do you remember the tremendous response of Abraham? to the former rich man's request down in Hades to send Lazarus back from the dead so that he could testify to his yet unsaved, um, yet living brothers, Jewish brothers. What was that statement Abraham made? He said, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. That was in Luke 16.31. And that declaration, you see, was very vividly proven by Christ's miracle of raising back from the dead a man whose name also happened to be Lazarus. And as we study our way through John chapter 11 and look at the, the responses of the people to this miracle, we find that it is indeed a perfect example of how miracles alone, apart from the word of God, and Moses and the prophets, um, is not enough to persuade men to repent and get saved. The purpose of miracles in the Lord's life was always to authenticate the validity of the word of God. For those who had ears willing to hear. The feeding of the 5,000, for example, which was really more like 15,000, validated, validated the truth of Christ's word that he was the true manna from heaven, that he is the bread of life. The healing of the, the man born blind uh, proved the truth of Christ's word that he is the light of the world. And the raising of Lazarus from the dead was to validate the truth of Christ's message that he is the resurrection and the life, which he says in uh, verse 25 of this chapter. The consequence of Lazarus's return from, from the dead was that those who had hearts which were right with God believed the word of God spoken through his son. They believed who, that he was who he claimed to be. You know, they saw Lazarus come out of the tomb and they believed because they had already had ears receptive to hear the word of God. So they therefore believed that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be, that he was the Messiah and he was the fulfiller of Old Testament um, scripture. They were persuaded of their need to repent and to trust in the person who had performed this mighty miracle. And if you look at verse 45, it tells us that many of the Jews who did believe, you know, had when they saw the miracle, they believed on Jesus, but those were the ones who had been spending time with Mary, which I thought was really interesting. Mary is the one we always see sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's the one who's always hearing the word of God, right? And so if these Jews who believed on him after the resurrection of, of Lazarus were ones who had spent time with Mary, what does that tell us? What do you think Mary was sharing with them? The word of God. So they had hearts that were attuned to the word of God. Therefore, when they saw the miracle, they believed on him. 
you know, on the other hand, those who were not right with God, who did not really hear Moses and the prophets, or else they would have recognized the one of whom Moses and the prophets spoke, they were not persuaded, though one did rise from the dead. They not only remained unpersuaded, but it was this very miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus was really wasn't a resurrection it was a raising from the dead um, but it was this miracle that brought the antagonism of the religious leadership of the Sanhedrin to officially decide that Jesus must be permanently removed look at verse 53 and what's so amazing is that they even knew he had performed this amazing miracle Some of them were there and saw the miracle. They saw Lazarus come out of a tomb where he'd been for four days all wrapped up in his grave clothes. They witnessed that miracle, and yet they didn't believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And they, 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 so in other words, a miracle doesn't persuade people if their heart isn't right. And uh, they wanted to permanently silence him. Furthermore, they, and you can look at uh, chapter 12, verse 10, to see that I'm, what I'm saying is true about this. They even went a step further. They, they plotted and planned not only how they might silence Jesus, the one who performed the miracle, but who else did they want to shut up permanently? <laughs> Lazarus. They wanted to put that poor guy right back in his tomb. I mean, that just shows you again the hardness of unbelief. And this is after they witnessed the miracle and they had no doubt in their mind that Jesus had raised him from the dead. It's incredible. All right, now, I want to make it very clear from the start that this miracle was not performed as a sign miracle to convince the nation of Israel of Christ's deity. Because if that was the case, then it would contradict the Lord's own words to the Pharisees back in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 40. Remember what he had told the Pharisees? Of course, he had been performing all kinds of miracles in front of them. And what do they ask for? Oh, you know, show us a sign that we may believe. And he said, no more signs, you guys, until the sign of Jonas the prophet. You know, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. That's going to be the very next sign that I will give to you. And I got to thinking about that. And I said, no wonder he kept Lazarus in the grave four days. You know, if Lazarus had only been in there three days, I might have thought that that was the sign of Jonas. You know, so poor old Lazarus had to, you know, stay there one more day just so they made sure that wasn't the sign. (laughs) But the, the great miracle, the great Bethany miracle was not for the benefit of the nation. It wasn't so that the nation would get an extra sign that they wanted. It was for the strengthening of the faith of the Lord's own men at this critical time when they're just a little bit away from the cross. And I can say this dogmatically because of what the Lord himself says to his men in verse 15. Haven't read it yet, but look at it. He says, uh, you know, that Lazarus has died. And then he says, uh, and I am glad which seems kind of weird, but he says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent, what? Ye may believe. This was not a signed miracle for the nation. He did not contradict 
his words that their next sign as a nation would be his own resurrection. This was a sign for his own disciples. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus were also his disciples. Now, the raising of Lazarus is the final of seven pre-crucifixion miracles that were especially selected by the God-inspired Apostle John to include in his record of Christ's life. And amazing, this is amazing to me, that John was the only one to present this miracle. The resurrection of the raising back from life, a death of, of Lazarus. John is the only one. We don't read about it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, which in itself is pretty amazing. I'll get back to that. But just in the fact that six of the seven pre-crucifixion miracles John's gospel contains are not found in the synoptic gospels is, as I said, in itself pretty amazing. And it really shows us that the Spirit of God was very obviously inspiring and leading all four men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Otherwise, think about it. Why would Matthew, Mark, or Luke not have included in their gospel accounts this incredible miracle? Uh, Matthew was there. Mark Mark, and Luke, I don't guess, were there, but they certainly heard about it. Um, Peter was there, and he's the one who inspired you know, Mark's account. Not inspired it, but anyway. Um, but why wouldn't they have included this most fantastic miracle? Well, it, it just goes to show us that, the, the, that these Gospels were God-inspired, okay? Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke would have had no idea that one day God was going, God the Holy Spirit was going to inspire John to write a gospel because when they wrote, John hadn't written a gospel account of Christ's life. They didn't know that John one day would be inspired to write one and they didn't know that John would be the one who would write this about this particular miracle. But the Holy Spirit purposely kept the three of them silent as far as this miracle was concerned. And the reason for that, isn't that amazing when you think about it? I hope you get what I'm saying. But I mean, this is just another proof that the scripture is divinely inspired. The reason for it is because this miracle was going to be used as the climax of the seven specifically chosen miracles of Christ given to us by John in his record of the Lord's life so as to emphasize his deity. You see, the Holy Spirit chose John, last one to write, to emphasize the deity of Christ. And this miracle, probably more than any other miracle, I don't know, you could debate about that. Sometimes I think when he created wine out of just water, that's a pretty amazing miracle when he walked on the water. But I guess most people say that this was, other than his own resurrection, pretty much the most climactic miracle of all, that he raised a man who had been four days dead. But... Um, But John was the one who was chosen to emphasize the deity of Christ. So the Holy Spirit kept those other men quiet because Matthew was emphasizing Christ as king, right? Sovereign king. Um, Mark was writing a portrait of Christ as the servant of God. Luke as the son of man, you know, his, his humanity side. And, and John was the one who was saved to, to, um, 
not saved, but inspired to write Christ as, as the Son of God, about Christ as the Son of God. So that's just incredible. Now, someone might ask the question, well, what is so climactically great about Lazarus's raising from the dead? I mean, you know, there were, after all, other miracles like this. Even in the Old Testament, we have three other life restoration miracles. For example, we have the widow of Zarephath's son who was raised by Elijah and the Shunammite woman's son who was raised by Elisha. And then there's that really weird account of that man who was uh, buried. He was thrown into his grave and his bones, his body happened to touch the bones of Elisha and he came to life. Wouldn't you have liked to have seen that? That's pretty weird. Um, But we have that one. And then there were even two previous raising back from the dead miracles by Jesus himself. He had risen back Jairus' 12-year-old daughter and also the widow of Nain's son. And so what's so special about Lazarus' raising? Well, what's so special about it is that all the other restoration miracles from death occurred right away. Right after, right after the person had died, even that man, you know, they, and because back in those days they buried people the same day that they died. So even the man that was thrown into the grave, you know, he was being buried the very same day he died. But in um, Lazarus's raising from the dead, and by the way, if you count through the scripture, one, two, three, four, five, Lazarus's raising from the dead is the sixth life restoration miracle in scripture and it is the most climactic because Lazarus had already been buried and dead for how many days four days so this means that he had not only just died that day his body had begun the corruption process and the Jews had this belief and it wasn't true because we believe absent from the body, present with the Lord, and as soon as the other Lazarus died, the beggar, the angels came and carried away his soul down to Abraham's bosom. But the Jews had a belief that the soul of a recently deceased person stayed around the body for a while. But they didn't believe that the soul stayed there by the body for as many as four days. So this miracle to them in their way of thinking also would have been the most climactic. But yes, it was indeed the most climactic because of the fact that his body had started the corruption process. And uh, by the way, another by the way, did you notice I have a lot of by the ways? (laughs) My lessons are full of by the ways. By the way, (laughs) did you know that the seventh recorded uh, resurrection from the dead was none other than Jesus' own. Go ahead, count them. You know, start with the the widow of Zarephath's son and go one, two, three, four, five, six. The seventh one was Jesus' resurrection. And as you know, seven is the biblical number for perfection. The Lord's resurrection was a perfect and complete resurrection. It was not just a restoration of life. It was perfect because he received a glorified body, a glorified resurrected body. And therefore, he was the first fruit of the true resurrection. He just didn't come back to life in a physical body like all the rest of them. 
His was a true resurrection. It was a perfect. So it was absolutely, again, doesn't that show us that the scripture is divinely inspired? All those guys writing these previous books didn't know that it would come out that Jesus would be the seventh one. And here's a trivia question that you can ask your children or your spouses or somebody you want to ask. There were two more uh, restoration from death miracles in the book of Acts. One was a woman, one was a man. Who knows who the woman was? Peter called her back to life. Dorcas. Dorcas was called back to life by Peter. And then there was this naughty guy that fell asleep when Paul was preaching. He was up in a window and he fell asleep. Can you imagine sleeping through preaching or teaching? Oh, my. And he fell out of the window and he died. And Paul had to raise him back from the dead. What was his name? You get a golden star. Yes, Eutychus. Who said that? You get a golden star. Peggy. Peggy, of course. Peggy. (laughs) She knows her Bible. Now, there were two more in the book of Revelation. And I believe these weren't restoration to life miracles back in their human bodies I think these were real resurrections book of revelation yeah and they're called the two two mighty witnesses yes you know they're laying there dead on the streets of Jerusalem can you imagine CNN and MSNBC and Fox News (laughs) as these two guys get up I think those were real resurrections. But anyway, that's trivia questions. All right. Why was the Apostle John, do you think, only inspired to record seven uh, pre-crucifixion miracles in his record of Christ's life when the Lord had performed so many, so many, so many miracles, and yet he was only divinely inspired to record seven? Why do you think that was so? And just to refresh your memory, let's go through the book of John and remember what they were. First of all, we had in John chapter 2 when he changed water into wine. Okay, then in John chapter 4, he healed a nobleman's sick to the point of death's son from a distance. Then in John chapter 5, we had the healing of the man who had laid impotent at the pool of Bethesda for 38 long years. We had in John chapter 6, two miracles. First of all, the feeding of the 5,000 with just five barley loaves and two fish. And then we had Jesus walking on the storm-tossed Sea of Galilee out to his disciples who thought they were going to perish. It's a terrible storm, and they thought, sure, they were going to perish. He comes out, gets into their boat. We have another miracle, actually, in that miracle, because the minute he stepped into the boat, what happened? They found themselves, the calm, the storm was instantly calm, and the boat was at the other shore, was at the, the shore, instantly at the other side of the lake. And then in John chapter 9, the Lord gave sight to a man who had been born blind. And now in John chapter 11, we have the seventh miracle of in John's account, John's gospel, and it is the raising of Lazarus after four days dead. Now, of all of these seven miracles, only the feeding of the 5,000 was not unique to John. In other words, John's the only one who tells us about turning water into wine. He's the only one who tells us about the nobleman's son and the healing of the man at Bethesda and Jesus walking on the water and giving the sight to the blind and Lazarus. He's the only one. Isn't that amazing? Now, one of the reasons, and there are many, one of the reasons why I believe the Holy Spirit inspired John to only include these seven was because they all are such obvious miracles 
to testify to the fact that the one who performed them is indeed the Son of God. They're all absolutely fantastic miracles. But another reason is because these particular seven miracles are presented with, uh, to give us a symbolic picture of the state of the natural unsaved man. The natural man is a clay vessel, right? Remember the water pots? Clay vessels. And the natural man... Medically, we're made up of something like 97% uh, water. Remember, the clay vessels were filled with water. And the natural man is, uh, only Christ can fill him with joy. Mary's words, Mary, Jesus' mother, words to her son in that first miracle were what? They were at a wedding feast and she said to him, they have no wine and wine in the scripture symbolically pictures joy only the lord jesus you see can give clay vessels a divine supply of joy something that the sinner is a total stranger to the natural man also is spiritually sick as was the nobleman's son in John chapter 4, because sin is a disease that has robbed man of his spiritual health. Only Christ, even from a distance, and he is at a distance from us right now, even though he lives in us, you know, he's in heaven. Even from a distance, only he can restore man to a healthy relationship with our father. Then the impotent man of John chapter 5 tells us that the natural man is completely without strength, totally helpless and hopeless to do anything to better his own condition apart from the intervention of Christ. The great multitude without any food in John chapter 6 speaks of the fact that man is destitute in in and of himself to give himself anything that has spiritual satisfaction. The, the multitude there pictures the great inner hunger of the natural man, which can only be fulfilled, he can only receive true spiritual satisfaction by the bread of life, the one who gives him the true manna from heaven. Then the picture of the very frightened disciples out on the storm-tossed sea in John chapter 6 symbolizes the dangerous position of all sinners because we are all on a storm-tossed sea of life on our way to perishing without the intervening rescue of who? Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when he is invited into our boats, remember he was going to walk and pass right by. They had to invite him into their boat. When we, when we invite him into our boats, we are then as good as instantly on the other side. Don't we have an anchor <laughs> in heaven? It's just as though we're automatically anchored on the other side. You know, heaven, the side of calm, rest, and peace. And then the spiritual picture we found in the healing of the man who had been born blind in John chapter 9 was, of course, that the natural man is indeed spiritually blind from birth, having been born with the Adamic sin nature. Without the miraculous sight-giving intervention of Christ, who is the light of the world, we would all live and die in complete spiritual darkness. But now, in John chapter 11, the seventh miracle of Christ 
in John's Gospel, we find the most serious condition of the natural man. Not only is he devoid of divine joy and sick with sin, impotent to help himself in any way whatsoever, spiritually hungry but without food to feed himself, on his way to destruction, and totally blinded to the way he is going, but also he is dead in his sins and in his trespasses. Like Lazarus, now think about this, like Lazarus, mankind from Adam to the coming of Christ, man was in a place of death for four days. From Adam to Christ was 4,000 years. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years, Second Peter 3.8. From the fall of man in Adam to the coming of Christ, the resurrection um, and the life, the one who came to this Bethany, this house of affliction and mourning, so as to call man out of his dead. There were 4,000 years, four days. Isn't that perfect picture? Again, he is the answer. Christ is the answer to man's impossible dilemma of sin and death. And this is why John's seventh miracle of Christ's healing power is the climax. Because if Christ could do nothing about death, even if he could, and he did, change water into wine, feed the hungry, walk on water, calm a storm, heal the sick, restore the impotent, and give sight to the blind, none of those things would ultimately matter if we all still died in our sins, right? Right. Thank you. (laughs) But the good news, the best news I could ever share with you is that he could do something about sin and death. And he did. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. All right. Um, That was my introduction. All right. Now, I... (laughs) I like a lot of, I have a lot of by the ways, and I also like to do a lot of comparisons and contrasts in Scripture. And I think that just brings the Bible alive. And I think that that they're in there so that we can do comparisons and contrasts. And um, so I like to do them. But if we compare the first of John's recorded miracles with the last of John's recorded miracles, It's really interesting. Uh, For one thing, we find that both dealt with families. Remember last week we talked about families. Families are so important. And we see that in the Lord's life. He's always dealing with families. He's dealing with a family here, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. But the first miracle um, was in Cana of Galilee, the northern province, province, where a family was gathered together to celebrate one of life's happiest occasions. And what was that? A wedding. And the other, the last miracle in John's account, was in, um, was in Bethany of Judea, the southern province, where a family was gathered for one of life's saddest occasions, which was a funeral. Now, at one, the first one, the Lord Jesus revealed himself as the Lord of creation by creating wine out of water. You know, we, that's an act of creation. If you weren't here, you know, we talked about he didn't even, you know, plant grapes and let the grapes grow and all that. It was an act of creation. But in the second, he revealed himself as the creator, changing a tomb 
to a triumph. And in both, he was the one who brought joy to the occasion. You know, you can have a wedding, but if Christ isn't there and he isn't in the center of that wedding, they're going to run out of wine. There's not going to really be joy in a wedding that doesn't have Christ there present. Same thing with a funeral. Now, a funeral is a sad occasion, but yet if Christ is there, there can be joy even in the midst of sadness. I experienced that myself with my mother because I knew where she was, and I knew it was just temporary separation. So Jesus, who at this time in our study of John chapter 11, was near the border of Perea in Bethabara, where John the Baptist had first baptized, and you can read about that in John 10:40. We know where he was. He received a messenger who was sent from Mary and Martha in Bethany, about 25 miles away from where he was. Now, 25-mile walk would be a good, hard, one-day walk back in those days. And the messenger told him something that he, being omniscient, already knew. The messenger told him that Lazarus, the brother of Martha and Mary, was dead. I mean, was sick. Was sick. But actually, he died that very day. We'll get to that. But the words was sick speak of great weakness and sinking health. Obviously, Lazarus would have had to have been very dangerously sick for the two sisters, Martha and Mary, to make an appeal to Jesus because they knew how hostile the Jewish religious leaders in nearby Jerusalem, Bethany and Jerusalem are only two miles apart. They knew how hostile those Jewish uh, leaders were toward him. And so they wouldn't want him to come that close to Jerusalem unless they knew for sure that Lazarus was not going to improve. You know, so they waited until they bothered the master. Perhaps knowing how he had even healed others at a distance before, they might have thought that he could do the same thing for Lazarus. You know, get the message and maybe he could just say the word and Lazarus would be well. Although I really don't think that's what they were thinking. They And I know this from over in verse 21 and also verse 32. When he does finally arrive four days late, um, they say, Lord, if you had been here. So they're really hoping he is going to come there. Well, as it turns out, Lazarus actually did die on the very day that the messenger found Jesus. The messenger would have left Mary and Martha's house when Lazarus was still alive. And they said, go to Jesus. Apparently they knew where he was. It would have taken that messenger a whole good day of hard walking to get to Jesus. By the time he got to Jesus, Lazarus had already died. And we know that because when Jesus does get to Bethany, Lazarus has already been four days dead. And, you know, they buried them the same day. So he would have been buried the very same day the messenger is walking to, to find Jesus. Now, did you know that this is the very first time in our life of Christ's study that we find out that Mary and Martha even had a brother? We hadn't known. I mean, we know it because we've read the Bible beforehand, but this is really the first time in our study that we find out that they did have a brother. In fact, if we were only studying John's gospel, this would be the very first time we ever even heard of Martha and Mary at all. Now, critics of the scripture would say, and they're always looking for something, but they would say, well, why would John just assume that his readers would know that these two sisters, uh, about these sisters, when he had never mentioned them before? Go through John 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. He never mentioned them before. 
And that doesn't, they'd say that doesn't sound like divine inspiration. But the fact is that John was the last one to pen his gospel account. And by that time, believers would have already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account. And they would have been very familiar with these two beloved Christian sisters. They would have already read Matthew 26 and Luke 7 about Mary's special anointing of the Lord's feet with her expensive perfume. And they would have already read about poor Martha's fussing with her sister, you know, that she wasn't in the kitchen helping her out over in Luke chapter 10. So even though John himself would not write about Mary's anointing until its proper chronological place in his gospel account, which happens to be John chapter 12, the next chapter, yet he knew when he got to John 11 that his readers would already be familiar with Martha and Mary and this incident of Mary anointing the Lord's feet, which is why he mentioned it in verse 2. And um, to make sure that everyone knew it was that Mary whose brother Lazarus was sick, he says, that Mary, you know, the one who anointed the Lord's feet. And he had to say that Mary, who, because it can get really confusing if you read about the Marys in, in the New Testament. Uh, how many of you have the name Mary? Mary, one, two, three, and four, and Mary Bullard isn't here. Mary, there are six Marys. In, in the New Testament, so it can get confusing. So he qualifies. It tells us which one. Okay, let's, let's look at the message that the sisters sent to uh, Jesus. They said, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. It was a very simple and humble appeal to the Lord's heart. They called him Lord. He was not only their Lord in the good times, but he was also the Lord, their Lord in the bad times when their beloved brother was seriously in danger health-wise. Now, it's worth noting that in their plea to Christ, the sisters did not specifically request Jesus to do something. Do you notice that? They don't say, Lord, heal our brother from a distance. Or, Lord, we claim your healing power right now on Lazarus. Or, Lord, come back to Bethany right now. It would seem that Martha had learned her lesson. Remember last time she burst into the room where he was teaching? She said, Lord... She called him Lord, and then she gave him a command. She said, bid my sister to come and help me. It seems like she kind of, and I think both sisters were involved in writing this message. You know, Lord, um, behold, he who come, who, whom thou lovest is sick. So it looks like, although, you know, Martha is a lot like us. She wavers in her faith because she has a little problem again with this when she's standing outside the tomb. And he says, have the stone rolled away. And she says, Lord. You sure you know what you're talking about? <laughs> so she wavers. Um, but you know, it is our blessed privilege as believers to present our requests, not our commands, but our requests before the Lord. The Most High God is not our servant to be brought into subjection to our will. Prayer is not us on the throne dictating to God what to do. Prayer puts us on our knees before the throne. And it is a what? A throne of grace. It's a throne of grace. And because grace is all about something that we do not deserve, do we deserve grace? No, that's what makes it grace. We don't deserve it. And because it's a throne of grace, that means that we can't demand it. We can't demand something we do not deserve. 
Besides, the creature does not dictate to the creator. So the two sisters of Bethany simply told, and they're com- I'm commending them for this, they simply told Christ that Lazarus was sick, and then they let Jesus decide what to do. Although we will see that their faith wavers, you know, because they did expect him to come. But anyway, the lesson for us is this. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass in his own sovereign way and on his own divine timetable. But, you know, commit it to him. Leave it with him. Don't commit it unto the Lord and then develop an ulcer which is what we tend to do. Or I'm, I know I'm more guilty than the rest of you. <laughs> Notice something else commendable about these sisters' requests. They didn't play on or emphasize their own virtues. Virtues. They didn't say, Lord, we have helped you on many occasions. When you were ministering in Jerusalem, we opened our house to you. We gave you a place to lay your head at night, a nice, soft, comfortable pillow. You know, we fed you delicious meals. Now it's reciprocation time. Now it's time for you to do something for us. Or they didn't even try to gain his favor by playing on uh, their love for him or Lazarus's love for him. They didn't say to him, uh, Lord, behold, Lazarus, who loves you, is gravely sick. That would kind of have been a form of bribery. And by the way, here's another by the way. If If it was our love for Jesus that activated his blessings on our behalf, guess what? (laughs) It would be pitiful. We would all be in a very precarious situation because we don't always love God as we should. Our love is earthbound. Our love is inconsistent. Our love fluctuates. And our love is often very self-centered. Rather, we have the privilege to pray because of God's love for us. So the two women rightly made their request to Jesus with an appeal to his love, his love for Lazarus. They knew that he loved Lazarus, and, and, he, and they knew he loved them, as we are told in verse 5. It's Christ's unconditional love that never wavers for us, and not our feeble love for him that forms the basis of our requests. And they had it right here. So, again, they're commended. It's also good that Martha and Mary sought the right one to um, bring their troubles to. They didn't run to some well-known physician in Jerusalem, did they? They went to the right source, and they unburdened their hearts to him because he is our refuge, and he is our strength, and he is a very present help in trouble. Now, they may not have thought that the Lord's way of handling their prayer request was very good at the beginning you know they i'm sure they were very disappointed we see that in what they say to him but we can be sure at the end they all agreed that his way of doing things was far better and far wiser and far greater than anything they could have thought or asked for right because it not only increased their faith and the faith of his disciples and resulted in others being saved. But didn't it heighten their joy? Don't you know that if he had just gone, well, he knew about it before. So what if he had been there in Bethany when Lazarus got sick and he just made him better? 
would they have had the great joy that they did when they saw their four-day-old brother come out of the grave, wrapped in his grave clothes? Thank you. No way. You know, if you ask for something and God gives it to you immediately, you say, thank you, Lord, and you're on your merry way. But if you have to wait, and when it finally is answered, doesn't that heighten your joy? Think about when he healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. That was a great miracle, but it certainly was nothing like the glorification Christ and God received when he called forth Lazarus from the tomb. Well, the Lord's response to the messenger when he got that message from Martha and Mary was, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, that would have been a greatly encouraging message to the sisters you know, by the time the messenger got back on the second day, the end of the second day, if they had gotten that message, that would have been great if one thing had not happened. <laughs> Whoops, Lazarus died. So this means that just, oh, think of the poor messenger. I'm sure when the messenger got the message, he saw, oh, this is wonderful. It probably ran part of the way. I can't wait to get back to the sisters who he probably loved to tell them this sickness is not unto death. But then when he finally gets back, oh, everybody's dressed in black. The mourners are there wailing. Lazarus is already in the tomb. And he's saying, ooh, I don't even really want to give this message to the sisters. But of course he does. And it seems that the sisters only focused on the part of the message where Jesus seemed to be wrong because the sickness had been unto death. What they didn't understand, of course was that death was not going to be the victor. Lazarus's sickness was not unto death in the ordinary sense of abiding death. Just as the sin sickness of those who have placed their faith in Christ is also not unto death. Did you know that? Not unto abiding death. Look at verse 25. What does he say? If you, you know, we are all struck with the sin sickness that otherwise would look like it's unto death. But he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, guess what? It's not abiding death. Soul is instantly with him. The body is just sleeping for a while and it's going to come back glorified. He says, he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. To me, that is the most incredible verse in all of scripture. I love that verse. Because it's just, it gives me everything. Everything. Hope. Otherwise, life would be so depressing, wouldn't it? Well, Jesus had known ahead of time about Lazarus' sickness even before he received the message, and he even knew that Lazarus died that very day, as we know because he tells his own men later on in this account. And in his return message to the sisters, he knows that when they get this message, Lazarus is already going to be dead and in the tomb, okay? He knows when the sisters hear his message that Lazarus is already dead. So what he is doing with this message is really trying to urge them to believe um, that whatever happens, you know, girls, don't look at the circumstances. Whatever happens, trust my word about this. And what is his word? This sickness is not unto death. And he even gives them a little clue here about who he is when he says, the Son of God. He's saying, I am God. 
I'm going to be glorified. God the Father's going to be glorified. Hang on to that. That's what he's telling them. And he actually, um, look over at verse 40. When he says, you know, this is after Martha's, he, he tells Martha to have the stone rolled away. She says, oh, Lord, you know, by this time he stinketh because he's been dead four days. And he says to her, look in verse 40. Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. Now go ahead and you look at all your red letters in the, in the preceding verses. And he never spoke to her about the glory of God except when he gave that message. When he sent the message when he was still over in Bethabara. So he's saying, didn't I tell you if you would believe, believe what? Believe my word that this sickness is not unto death. He's reminding her of that message. Just as his word, remember his words to his disciples when they saw that man born blind and they said, who sinned, Lord, this man or his parents, you know, that he's born blind. And he said, no, so that the works of God should be made manifest. So that God will get, receive the glory and that he would receive the glory when he gave the man his sight. He was trying to get them to look beyond the sorrow to the divine purpose um, behind the sorrow. Well, the rest of the account, I know I'm going to hold you over a little bit here, but let me just read the rest. And as I read it, it's, it's pretty self-explanatory. It's a lot of dialogue, and I'll just say a word or two. And then I want to close by telling you something special about verse 6. Okay, so let's look at uh, verses 6 to 16. When he had heard, therefore, that he, Lazarus, was sick, Jesus abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. And his disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late, don't you remember back in Hanukkah, they sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of the world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. He's saying there, it's still day. Yeah, my hour has not yet come. I'm not going to stumble. I am not going to die. I'm going to complete the work my father gave me to, to do. And you can read more about that in, in your um, books about those two verses. But verse 11 says, These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. I like that. Not only was Lazarus his friend, you know, the Lord, as a man, needed friends, didn't he? Lazarus was one of his friends. like the And he was also, Lazarus was a friend of the other disciples. They all loved Lazarus. He must have been a really nice guy. But he doesn't speak about Lazarus in the past tense, does he? Because Jesus can see just, you know, as much into this world as he can, in, as he could, down into um, Abraham's bosom in paradise, as he can into heaven. So he talks about him in the present tense. Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. In the New Testament, the death of believers is always referred to as sleep. I like that. Because sleep, you know, you can easily raise somebody from sleep, can't you? Well, usually. I, oh, my son. We had a terrible time. He didn't want to get up in the morning. So, you know, he was not so easy to raise from sleep. But sleep is usually, you know, pretty easy. Shake somebody, wake up, wake up. And sleep speaks of rest. Now, this isn't the soul sleeping. We talked about that last week, but this is the body in the grave sleeping. He says, and look how, how simply he talks about this fantastic miracle. Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Come on, Lazarus, get up. 
And one day when he comes back at the rapture, you know he's going to say, okay, it's time. I delayed a couple days, but it's time. Everybody wake up. <laughs> and they're all going to wake up, come out of their graves. Fantastic. Then said his disciples, now they didn't understand. They said, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Here they are all um, doctors. And they say, well, if he's sleeping, that's good. You know, because if you sleep, like last week when I was sick, I went home and slept. And that was good for my body. I needed to sleep. So he said, okay, if he's sleeping, he's probably going to get better. And so he has to make it. Uh, well, John explains what they were thinking. He says, how be it? Because he was one of them. He knew he, what he was thinking. How be it Jesus spake of his death? But they thought that he had spoken of taking a rest and sleep. So Jesus has to make it very clear to his men. He says, Lazarus is dead. And here's where it sounds so weird. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent ye may believe. A sign for you guys, because you're going to need this. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. His mind was made up, and they knew when his mind was made up, that was it, right? So, Thomas, don't you all love Thomas? Thomas, <laughs> we all call him poor, poor Thomas, stuck with that for eternity, doubting Thomas. But anyway, Thomas, which is called Didymus, Didymus in Greek means twin. Sometimes I think I'm his twin. <laughs> Sometimes you're probably his twin. Uh, Thomas said unto his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. <laughs> we say, oh, Thomas, I, I know, at least he said Lord, right? Uh, his faith is a little bit weak here. Um, his, but his love, let's commend him for his love. You know, a lot of people aren't even willing to live for Christ. He was willing to die for him. You know, his, his faith is a little weak because he does think he is going to die with him. He thinks he's going to die. Didn't he see him escape right out of their hands? You know, he says, oh, well, let's go. We'll all die with him. And Thomas was eventually willing to die for his Lord because he did die a martyr's death. So don't ever let us point a finger at Thomas. Okay, I want to close by talking a little bit about um, verse 6. Verse 5 tells us that Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. But then verse 6 tells us that he stayed around for another two days where he was. And the natural man would say, well, what kind of evidence of his love is that? Well, as we know from the continuation of this account, Lazarus was dead anyway. By the time the Lord got the message, Lazarus was dead. So the best he could have done, humanly speaking, would have been to get uh, to Lazarus if he had left the minute the messenger gave him the message, which was at the end of the first day, because it took the mes messenger a day to get there, if he got the message and Jesus and his men left immediately, the best he could have done, humanly speaking, would have been to have gotten to Martha and Mary after Lazarus had been two days dead instead of four days dead. But the basis of God's love is not time. A delay with God does not mean an absence of love on the Lord's part. I mean, what do we do? Ask God for a request and then start looking at our watches? And the longer he takes, the less it means he cares about us, the, the less he, he loves us. I mean, that would be ridiculous, right? You all agree with that? That'd be ridiculous. We don't measure God's love on the basis of time. We find that he often makes us wait. 
Why? Well, because he knows it's for our own good and for his ultimate glory. It is human love that would, with racing heart, have fled to Bethany. Right? Just like I get a phone call, Mom, the kids are sick, and I jump in the car, and I'm off to Virginia Beach to get strep throat and thrush. (laughs) But human love, that's how human... But divine love doesn't need to be in a hurry. You know, there is only one time that divine love wants to be in a hurry, and that is when the repentant sinner is coming home. Isn't that the picture we saw in the parable of the prodigal son? The father is a picture of God. The only time that we see God in a hurry in the scripture is when he is running to embrace the repentant sinner. I love that. But otherwise, omnipotence has no concern with time. Just think about if you were omnipotent, if you were all-powerful, You're outside of time to begin with, but you don't have to worry. You know what you're going to do in a situation, so time is not a big factor. Christ knew how circumstances were going to unfold, and he knew that his delay would only further demonstrate his love for this family, and it did. Here we are some 2,000 years later reading about his fantastic love for this particular family, and he knew that his delay would more greatly glorify himself, the Son of God, and his Father in heaven. He knew his delay would result in far more faith and far more joy in the hearts of Martha and Mary and his own disciples and greater testimony to the people around them. God often makes us wait. I don't like it, do you? I don't, I don't like waiting, but he often makes us wait before his love becomes visible, but that does not mean that his love isn't there. Sometimes it just takes a while from our perspective for God to work out all the circumstances so they come out the way that he wants to deliver them to us. Sometimes that takes time for him to orchestrate what's going on over here and over there, but he does work all things out together for good, right? And in his time and in his way, then he will deliver them to us. And the fact is that God loves us so much that sometimes he does make us wait so that we get something far better than what we would have settled for in the beginning. You know, they would have settled for a sick brother who got off of his sick bed. And like I said, the joy would have lasted for a day or two. But didn't they get something, oh my, so much better? Think about Mary. Why did she anoint the Lord? Well, because she had a perception of things far greater than I think any of his men disciples. But also because she was just so filled with overflowing at who he had shown her he really was when he called forth her brother out of the tomb. So the Lord knows what's best, doesn't he? And he knows the the right time. So do not interpret his love by time. And remember the words of Isaiah 30, 18. What did he say in Isaiah 30, 18? And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. And therefore will God be exalted. Blessed are all they that wait upon the Lord. Let's pray. Father... Help us to see and to understand 
that your love for your children is not a pampering love that just immediately gives us everything our spoiled hearts want, but rather your love is a perfecting love. Help us, Lord, to to trust in the fact that you do things in a way that tests us and stretches us and exercises our faith. And you do things in a way that will develop our character into Christ-likeness and and that will develop our patience and keep us continuously dependent on you for and in and through everything. And Father, teach us to understand that your love is no guarantee that we are not going to experience the problems and and the heartaches and the sicknesses of this life. But may we understand that like our Savior, who, who united love and suffering as he accomplished the work that you sent him to do, that we might bring glory to you no matter what you send our way. And Father, may we, may we be committed to, to doing our best for you while it is yet day. Help us not to stumble. And Lord, we thank you so much again for the truth that you are indeed the resurrection and the life. And even those who are dead, who have put their faith in you, will rise again when you come back. We love you and we pray in your name. Amen.